Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. We're taping this show on the 11th of July of 2014. Twenty years ago, the Rwandan genocide was in its final days. In a spasm of violence that startled most of the world, Rwandans killed hundreds of thousands of their fellow citizens. Many others were raped, injured, or driven from their homes or forced into hiding. The genocide would end only with the conquering of the country by the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Even then, the violence was not over, as war spread to the nearby Congo and continued for years. Today, rather than interview a specific author, as we usually do on the show, we're going to spend an hour thinking more broadly about a particular genocide, that in Rwanda. The podcast, however, is to some degree inspired by a single book, Alison DeForge's remarkable Leave None to Tell the Story, published in 1999. The book is a tour de force of careful research and analysis and set the direction for research on on Rwanda after it. Nevertheless, it's 15 years old, and since then we've had hundreds of studies examining the genocide and its aftermath. So today, we're going to spend a few minutes assessing that new research using the broad question of what do we know about Rwanda and the genocide 20 years after? To do so, we have three of the preeminent experts in the field. Scott Strauss started out as a journalist before moving into academia. Here, he has been enormously productive, the author of several books and many articles about Rwanda, genocide studies, and Africa more broadly. I'll just name one of those here, his examination of the behavior of those who killed during the Rwandan genocide, titled The Order of Genocide. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Our second guest, Lars Waldorf, in addition to his academic career, has been a lawyer, a journalist, and a director of Human Rights Watch's field office in Rwanda. He's the author of numerous articles about Rwanda, human rights, and genocide. Here, I'll just note the book he co-edited with Scott, titled Remaking Rwanda, State Building and Human Rights After Mass Violence. Lars, we're thrilled to have you with us as well. Hi, it's great to be here. And finally, longtime listeners of the show may be familiar with our last guest, Leanne Fuji. Leanne joined us for an interview about her book, Killing Neighbors, Webs of Violence in Rwanda. Since then, she's been hard at work on a volume comparing violence in Rwanda, Bosnia, and the American South. Leanne, we're glad to have you back as well. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So later in the show, we're going to turn specifically to the issue of how Rwandans have responded to the genocide, one of the uh, focus of the research of, of our guests. But to begin, I'd like to invite each of our panelists just to identify an aspect of our understanding of the genocide that, that's remained constant. In other words, what did Alison DeForge and her fellow researchers say 15 years ago that, that they got right, that still strikes you as true and important? And Leanne, why don't we start with you? Okay, I think that's a great question to ask um, as we sort of commemorate the 20 years since the end of the genocide and war in Rwanda. And I would have to say there's two things that strike me. That is the importance of local dynamics and local leaders um, during the violence. And I'm going to squeeze in a second, which I think is the importance of evidence-based claims. 
So this mm-hmm. idea that you only make a claim if you have proper evidence to back it up, that you don't make assumptions about anything, but you drive your analysis through through actual evidence. Well, it's good to see we've started the podcast with our first answer actually breaking the rules, but that's okay. <laughs> Lars, what do you think about this question? Um, I guess I would have to say that one of the things that I think still amazes me about the book is that it also addresses um, the war crimes and crimes against humanity that was committed by the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And that was, you know, a difficult and daring thing to do. And again, it, it, it showed Allison's commitment, very much a human rights commitment to victims of all sides of the conflict. And it, it's part of the reason that um, the book has had a difficult life getting published in Kenya, Rwanda and Rwanda. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I was actually, that's interesting because I was actually going another direction because I, I think it's out of print. Is that right? Yeah, it's been out of print for a while, um, though it is available on the Human Rights Watch website. Yeah. And again, it, it, that's also kind of an amazing thing. I mean, this, this is a book that breaks all the rules about a human rights report, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, and, but it's, the test of time in many ways. And Scott? So my view would be that the most lasting impact of that book was really to document that genocide occurred. And up until that point, there was certainly a lot of a lot of discussion of that. There were a couple of reports. But I think in terms of, you know, some type of systematic documentation of an organized campaign of of massive violence against Tutsi civilians in the country, I think that book really broke ground and that, you know, that remain it remains a primary source in terms of the documentary evidence that we have. So when I talk to my students about this, and I talk to them a fair amount, um, one of the things that comes up repeatedly uh, and this gets at something uh, Leanne said, is, is the nature of the violence. They're, they're struck by the kind of immediacy of the killing, the, the brutality of the killing, and especially in the way in which the, the killing was face-to-face, often between people who knew each other. Scott, both you and Leanne, and I'll start with Scott, have studied this. Um, can you quickly summarize why the killing and the violence took the shape it did? So my you know, my analysis of the situation um, places a lot of emphasis on the importance of local mobilization, and, and Leanne's does as well. Mm-hmm. And the Rwandan state, you know, for people who have not been there, this is a small country with a fairly well-developed administration. So even though it's a relatively poor country, um, it has historically... Uh, an administrative structure that extends from the center of the country, from the national level, all the way down into uh, local areas and, and what are called the hills in Rwanda, not not villages. And that administrative structure gave the state the ability to effectively mobilize the population very, very quickly um, and, and with large numbers. And so I think the key thing to understand about the extent of, of ordinary civilian participation in the violence uh, are the pre-existing mobilization structures that existed in the country. So what that means is that when uh, government leaders took the decision and military leaders took the decision to 
basically commit war against the Tutsi population, they had in place uh, institutions that they could draw on that allowed them to reach across the country and get lots of people involved very quickly. So that would be, you know, that would be the sort of number one thing that I would mm -hmm. emphasize in terms of trying to understand the the, the sort of the, the nature of the local level participation. Leanne, the the thing, the one thing anybody knows about Rwanda is the idea that there are Tutsis and Hutus. They may not know what they were or who they were, but this is what they've heard of. Does does is that how important is that ethnic distinction in your sense of of the dynamics of killing and how that happened? Well, one of the things I argue or conclude in my book is is that of course it was the kind of premise of the genocide. It was the what I call the organizing principle of the genocide that the main targets were Tutsi. But as many people have pointed out, uh, many scholars of Rwanda have pointed out was that in those first days of killing. Um, the main targets, especially in Kigali, were obviously um, political opponents of the of the you know group, the regime that who were comprised of the main extremists. So what Scott calls the hardliners, others have called extremists, but these were the um, people that I think we most associate with the genocide proper. This isn't everybody in the government at the time, so it's important to to dis distinguish that group from other people who may have been in power at the time and. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is um, the, one of the most important um, factors. Um, and so, um, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the. I'm, I was trying so hard to track the question. I, I need you to just prompt me. <laughs> to what degree does this Tutsi and Hutu ethnic distinction drive what happens on the ground? And that's why. And that's why. Because I, that question is so loaded that I think that. Um, what I tell my students basically is that, you know, it's it's one lens um, to understand, but if you only rely on that lens to understand what happened in the lead up, if you only use a sort of ethnic lens, um, and that's probably why I stopped tracking the question because I'm almost allergic to it at this point. Mm -hmm. um, it's the most common one that that I think uninformed people. It's the it's the readiest explanation and description of what happened. But what I tell my students and what I insist on is that they go further than that. And, and I try and show them all the ways in which relying on that lens solely actually distorts and, and you know, occludes so much of the dynamics that were really, really, really important at the time. So essentially what that does is drives out all the politics. And, the po and, and for me, the politics were key. So it was certainly one important you know, modality of, of identification by the state, of self-identification by, you know, just regular people. But but I think importantly, we have to remember it was just one of many, and it wasn't always the most important. And I think that that's what I tend to emphasize um, over and over because we so quickly fall into talking about Rwanda in terms of Hutu and Tutsi. Scott, Lars, you agree, disagree, want to flesh anything out? Yeah, well, this is Scott. I mean, I think I think Land's absolutely right. But the other thing I would add is that you have to be careful about what we mean by ethnicity. So you know, mm -hmm. it's abundantly clear that in Rwanda, the terms Hutu and Tutsi have a long political history in the country. That is that, you know, the colonial state, even the pre-colonial state, 
um, attribute a lot of political significance to these categories. They were, it was a Tutsi monarchy, largely the colonial system built its, uh, you know, built its structure around the idea that Tutsis were the privileged group in Rwanda. And then we had a Rwandan revolution in the 1950s and 1960s premised on the idea of, of Hutu nationalism, of the idea that, that Hutus were the majority and that they should rule. And in the 1990s, in the sort of run-up to the genocide, you know, the, the overwhelmingly most important factor was the fact that you had an insurgency that was dominated by Tutsis that were now threatening the, the Hutu state. So there's a very long political history of the importance of these ethnic categories. Okay? But what that doesn't mean is that the political history drove relationships on the ground. That is, the, the relationships between Hutus and Tutsis in the country, um, you know, at, at the local level, even at the regional level, even at the political level. There were all kinds of relationships that had nothing to do with ethnicity. And, and, and most, you know, I think in Leanne's work and my work, when you go down to and talk to individuals in Rwanda about their lives before the genocide, they will not say, okay, our, our lives and our relationships were governed by ethnicity. They were governed by all kinds of other things that had to do with, um, with survival, with uh, sending their kids to school, that, that had to do with putting, you know, food on the table and other kinds of, of ordinary relationships. Um, and so ethnicity, even though it mattered in this sort of deeper political history of the country and ultimately was the organizing principle of the genocide, as Leanne said, um, it did not govern everyday relationships in the country and did not drive participation in the, in, in the violence. It wasn't, people didn't commit genocide because they hated Tutsis, because they had deep hatred of Tutsis. That just wasn't the case. Um, and so I think it, the, the hard, the tricky part here, as Leanne was suggesting, is sort of to recognize that there is this this long and important political history around ethnicity, um, and, and there's a lot of significance there, but that doesn't, we can't infer from that that either the, that governed relationships between people in the country or that's what drove participation in the violence. So, Kelly, can I ask a question? Yeah, please. I was going to ask both Lars and Scott whether or not, so I, I really appreciate what Scott just said, and I just wondered if after that very eloquent um, explanation, and I'm sure you give that to your students as well, whether or not your students still can't grasp that distinction that you're making of, of it having a long political history and a separate, I would say, more complex, like a different social history. And by social history, I mean the sort of everyday ways in which ethnicity was or wasn't deployed or was or wasn't important on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and whether your students um, are able to, to get that or, or whether your colleagues or whether, you know, others, even after giving that very, I think, um, you know, eloquent explanation, whether they're able to get it or whether they still kind of push back on you. Lars, you want to take that first? I think it's, I, I mean, my experience is that it's very difficult for uh, a lot of students to get beyond ethnicity. And, you know, mm -hmm. one way I try to do it is by also talking to them about, you know, sort of the, the number of people who were involved in the genocide who were, you know, married to Tutsi or had Tutsi in-laws and, and to, to understand that there was a real history of relationships and intermarriage and all of that. And again, as you know, you know, 
from Rwanda is this re- rebuke to, you know, what social psychologists call, you know, the contact hypothesis, the idea that, you know, the more contact we have, the, the, yeah. the less conflict there's going to be. And you guys in your work, but also Omar McDoom and his work, you know, sort of help turn that a bit on its head and, and sort of point out that part of the reason the genocide was so efficient and effective uh, in its terrible way was precisely because there was so much contact and people knew who was what and where to find them. Scott? Yeah, so I when I teach about Rwanda, I usually put it in a comparative genocide context. And mm-hmm. I would say that it's not just the Rwanda case that people have this lens of identity differences driving violence, but it applies to the Holocaust, it applies to the Armenian case, it applies to Guatemala, mm-hmm. it depends on whatever, mm-hmm. almost any other case, mm-hmm. with the possible exception of the Khmer Rouge uh, and some of the Stalinist campaigns. Um, but I pretty much labor in the whole class to disabuse Students of this of this primary approach to the study of genocide, and so by the time I get by the time I get to Rwanda, which is sort of my coup de grace, um, I, uh, I I feel I I think that students at least get the message um, that the dynamics of genocide are a lot more complicated than. Um, interpersonal hatred and interpersonal distrust based on identity differences. Um, and that it's just a much, it's a much more complex type of violence. Um, so I, I think, I think both Leanne and Lars are right in the sense that it's very hard to get people to move off of an ethnicity frame, but mm-hmm. I think you can do it through partly through a discussion of other cases, partly through mm-hmm. the Holocaust, the Armenian case, Again, whatever your whatever your case history is, um, you know, and also to make the point that there are lots and lots of places around the world that that you have identity differences that don't result in genocide or don't even result in large scale violence. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, those are my two cents. Mm-hmm. You know, let let me follow up on that, and and I guess I'll ask Scott to start, and then the the other two of you can pitch in if if you'd like, but. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more at the end of the show about kind of the lessons learned and the way that's impacted uh, everything from international policy to legal cases and so on. But but it does strike me that many people at least come into our classrooms assuming that ethnicity or race or whatever term they're going to use is the driving factor. And I wonder if you think or, or what impact that has on broader perceptions of genocide and genocide prevention uh, in, in, in the uh, in kind of the, whether it's the academic community or, or the policy community or, or what that might mean? Um, let me make sure I understand the question. Um, I think, I think that, I think within the academic community and the policy community, both, um, I think there's been an enormous growth of, of, of understanding and knowledge about the dynamics of genocide over the past 20 years, really since since Rwanda and Bosnia. And Rwanda and Bosnia happened in the mid-1990s. From a kind of prevention and response point of view, we were just entirely under, I mean, we as in the academic and policy communities were entirely under-equipped to deal with what we were dealing with at that time both in terms of our models of understanding the dynamics of what was happening at that point. It was just, you know, the idea that these were these ancient hatreds. Um, and in terms of the policy tools and approaches and, and strategies that people had, they were, they were extremely poor. 
you know, if you, whether, whether from peacekeeping to mediation, et cetera, they, they were very underdeveloped. Since in the past 20 years, a lot has changed. Um, the policy toolkit, so to speak, is much more developed, is much more nuanced, is much more effective on the whole. And the analytic understanding of the dynamics of these events has also really gotten a lot better. And so I'd say now the dominant approach within the policy community and certainly the political science world is the idea that genocide and, and similar forms of large-scale atrocities are driven by strategic um, strategic interests, that mm-hmm. the leaders um, pursue large-scale violence in order to protect power, in order to win wars, um, and they do so very deliberately with these strategic goals in mind. And so it's not so much these atavistic hatreds and, um, and passions that drive it. It's really this sort of very senior-level, elite, strategic thinking um, and desire to hold power and, and fend off rivals, defeat rivals, that drive these types of mass atrocities. Um, and so I think that maybe we've gone overboard in that, in that direction, but the, there has been a really significant change um, in, in the academic and policy worlds about, about how to approach these particular problems. I hope that I think that answered your question. No, I, and and what I hear you saying is that actually the policy and academic communities are ahead of our students in recognizing the complexities and the differing motivations. Is is that a kind yeah. of fair summary of? Yeah, I think I think, but I think students, as soon as they hear that perspective, they get it really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I think the reality when you're dealing with the Rwanda, or you're dealing with the Darfur, or you're dealing with the Cambodia, or whatever those cases are, is that. The baseline knowledge for most people in the United States is just so low. I mean, they have no background in high school or before about Africa, uh, about Rwanda specifically, or any of these cases. Um, and there's, I think, in the, the, the result, the net result of that type of, of, of ignorance or lack of knowledge is to sort of latch on to, to what we think of as an easy framework to understand things, which is, you know, it's ethnicity. You can, you can get that. People don't like each other because of their differences. Um, and that just is, you know, it doesn't have any sense of history, of background, of, of understanding of the dynamics of what actually happened. As, you know, Leanne initially said, you need sort of the evidence. People don't walk into classrooms typically with that kind of knowledge. But when you expose them to that kind of knowledge and you expose them to a multitude of, of different approaches and different studies from different disciplines, pretty quickly students get the message that, okay, this is a lot more, yeah. this is a lot more mm-hmm. interesting and a lot more complicated than, you know, people hating each other because of their race or ethnicity. And, and we can, you know, we can draw, I think the most effective tools that I can use in the classroom are not studies of Rwanda. There's studies of the Holocaust, there's sort of mm. social psychology studies of, you know, Stanford prison experiment or the Milgram experiment or other things that show that people who in settings that are more similar to the, you know, university in, you know, in the global north uh, will commit incredible harm against, against other people, you know, with relatively little prompt um, and not based on, you know, p- past deep prejudices and hatreds and so forth. Um, then you get a couple of veterans in the room who talk about the dynamics of war and what fear yeah. is like, and you know, mm-hmm. and and you're there. You're in a totally different conversation, and it can mm-hmm. happen really fast with a with a relatively limited exposure. There's there's lots more we could say about this, but I, I'd like to move on uh, so that we can talk about some other things. Uh, and Lars, I'm going to ask you because uh, to start this, 
uh, having lived in Rwanda, what was what was Rwanda like in the years after the genocide and, and the years you were there? What did yeah. it feel like? I mean, I, I came to Rwanda really only first in 2001 and had, mm-hmm. you know, sort of lived there for a number of years uh, and then came back on and off. So I was really there from like 2001 through 2008. Um, so again, sort of... Uh, an intermediate uh, period of time. I guess um, you had a sense of really a, a place rebuilding itself. And, you know, even in the years that I was there and certainly the years since, I mean, you've had just a, a terrific, um, you know, reconstruction of uh, the infrastructure in Rwanda. And you would watch, you know, sort of the new Ministry of Defense go up. Um, which is this huge structure that kind of dominates the capital, Kigali. And again, there was just sort of a projection of both um, this government's power, but also sort of the the amount of donor money and uh, over time the amount of uh, private investment that was flowing into Rwanda was really quite impressive and very much dramatically on show. Hmm. Leanne, you were there maybe later? Yeah, I was there. I think Lars and I overlapped one week. Um, so I got there just <laughs> at the very end of Lars's um, stay. And, you know, but I've, I've also been back. I So I was there in 2004 um, for about nine and a half months and then went back starting in 2008. Um, so I've been back about three or four times since. And what struck me is really, um, I think one of my first trips there was, I think my very first trip was in 2002. And I remember um, that I remember thinking to myself at the time that unless you looked at specific places, if you didn't know, you you it was impossible to know that only say eight years before that you know this terrible terrible war and genocide had occurred, and that was really shocking to me. Um, it's it's a it's a place where I I feel like it's it's you know I always I, I felt. Sort of, it was rather suffocating at the time when I was there in 2004. But things have changed over time, and so I, I don't think I would use even that word. There's the power of the state um, and the presence of the state, even in a foreigner's daily life, is so ever present that it's it's almost um, you know it it feels heavy all the time, or at least that's how it feels to me. Yet at the same time, I'm you know I benefit from and I enjoy all the kind of things that the government has managed to um, have built um, over the last 10 years. And it's really quite amazing. You know, these skyscrapers and these, you know, these, these stores that are like Target back home and these, you know, and, and beautiful roads and, and um, marketplaces in the rural areas that have, are now um, cemented. And, and just all these, you know, what I think are, are incredibly smart um, kinds of, of improvements, smart in terms of they make, I think, outsiders' lives really easier, right? The kind of ubiquity of, of wireless internet and internet cafes and, and a very kind of, you know, um, uh, like at least telephonic and computer savvy um, educated population, particularly in Kigali, but even outside. And so just the kind of development has been really, really impressive. It at the same time, to me, it also feels like a very, um, it's a very hard place to be at the same time. 
Um, Scott, quickly, do you have what what, what kind of comments yeah, would you I have? I mean, you know, I, I started going to Rwanda in '96, and it was a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a lot rawer when I first started going. You, I traveled in convoys. Um, mm-hmm. When you talk to people, the, the violence of both '94, but also afterwards, what happened in Congo uh, in the early days of those wars was, was very much on. You, know, you could see it in people, um, and a lot of the things that you know that were still getting worked out then. Uh, who lived where? Who had access to what property? Um, you know, whether or not the state could establish security in the country, and and it's really changed so much since then in terms of those kinds of issues, and um, and so it's really been quite a remarkable transformation. So that was my quick response. Okay, so <laughs> so let me follow up on that because because at least a couple of you mentioned the kind of government role. So so Lars, I'd like to ask you at least to start this discussion. How has the government? Or what kind of efforts did the government take to address the genocide, and 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 how do we think about them now in terms of how successful they've been? I mean, I think they, they they've done it in a couple of ways. I mean, the, the the obvious way is that I think they are trying to de-ethnicize Rwanda. So they have, for a number of years, made um, ethnic or ethnicized speech criminalized in certain categories. Um, They have um, also um, forced the large segments of the population to go through various forms of re-education, including re-education camps. And in a sense, they're trying as this new um, campaign they have is called I Am Rwanda. They're trying to make everybody think in terms of that they are Rwandan. They're, They're not Hutu and they're not Tutsi. And that is really kind of incredibly ambitious social engineering. It's it's trying to create a new Rwanda. And it's very difficult to tell how successful that is, partly because it's difficult enough to do research in Rwanda for a number of reasons, but it's very difficult to assess people's attitudes towards ethnicity if you're not really allowed or able easily publicly to ask questions about ethnicity. And so we, we, we don't have a clear sense, I think, um, but, you know, certainly uh, through more ethnographic studies and, and through private conversations that, that all of us can have, you do have a sense from, from some people that, hey, these ethnicity, particularly this, this short a period after genocide, just doesn't go away very easily. Um, and, and there are also other things that the government does that are rather contrary and that reinscribe ethnicity. So mm-hmm. starting a few years ago, the government said, okay, you're no longer allowed to talk about the 1994 genocide. It's the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, reinscribing ethnicity. Um, and I think a lot of what the Chacha, which were these community courts set up to deal with the genocide, I think what they ended up doing was also sort of collectivizing guilt against the majority Hutu population. So again, I think there's, there's these contradictory impulses going on with how the government remembers and tries in its way or it's thinking to prevent future genocide. Can I add one thing? Um, and that is, I remember one of the first when Gachacha was in its pilot phase, and I was just starting my research. And I remember attending a Gachacha in Kigali. So I, again, I think this was 2002. 
And I remember sort of being astonished at the way they were describing, you know, how who could be a victim, how a victim was defined. And I remember even at that even at that time being astonished that it was narrowly defined such that only Tutsi could be victims of the genocide. And and so the, again, that's another way that that ethnicity um, is is you know sort of deployed in a way that reinscribes what Lars was saying, reinscribes those divisions, but but also in a way that the state gets to control or define, as opposed to people themselves kind of defining when or where or how it is or isn't important. Um, and so even this idea that that there's no talk of ethnicity sort of comes from this idea that, well, the reason why is because ethnicity is what caused the genocide. So this would be an example, say, if, you know, this was U.S. policy or something, I would say that's really wrong-headed policy because mm. it's built from a faulty premise that, in fact, ethnicity was the cause. And so, therefore, if you get rid of ethnicity, you get rid of any kind of, you know, um, possibility for that kind of violence or mass violence to happen again. And um, and so the premise and the practices to combine, I think, um, I agree with Lars that it's sort of, you know, it, it is still being inscribed and re-inscribed, but in very, very particular ways. Scott, what do you think about those comments? Well, I, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what Lars and Leanne said. I think the one thing I would add, I mean, your initial question was, you know, how has the government dealt with the genocide? And, and I think you listeners just have to know that the post-genocide government has has staked its legitimacy, has staked its power to a certain degree on the fact that there has been a genocide and on the fact that they stopped it and continue to be a bulwark against future genocides. And so the this post-genocide state in Rwanda has very much used the history of the genocide and used it in particular ways, in the ways that Lars and Leanne have suggested, um, that serve its interests. And I think that's just very important to understand when thinking about how the genocide gets gets figured inside Rwanda since 94. So, and, and, uh, and, I, and I think, if, if I can add, it's important that, the, I mean, what Scott's saying is very important, but that's the kind of comment that then gets you toward as, um, you know, either denying or minimizing genocide. And so I think it's, 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 it's very important to be able to recognize the genocide, to recognize that the current government stopped the genocide, but also to be able to criticize the current government for its political instrumentalization of that same genocide. In, in that sense, one of the accusations or, or, or one, one of the ways in which the interim government of Rwanda then and, and then the refugees tried to respond to international opinion about the genocide was to point to RPF atrocities and to come up with some kind of uh, suggestion that both sides are doing bad things and it's just what happens in war. What do we now know about the RPF behavior and and how do we address that kind of question in this political climate? And I'll just, Leanne, you want to start? And Well, I think it's really important that we distinguish between the types of violence committed in no way to make certain victims more important than others. This is not to, you know, create a hierarchy of suffering or victimhood. But I think it's important to say that 
um, the RPF did not commit genocide, yet it is still important. And this is where we have to distinguish genocide as an analytic term versus a political term. To say that the RPF did not commit a genocide is not to say that those crimes weren't serious. So I think it's important that we don't assign equivalence to all sides in some kind of wrongheaded uh, attempt at being balanced in the way that, you know, so many outsiders did in, in the case of Bosnia. I think that's just, you know, that's going, that, that's just ridiculous to another extreme. But neither should we say, well, the most serious was, you know, the genocide against the Tutsi. I mean, you know, and then deny anything, any ancillary violence, because there is, there, there were at least three types of violence going on at the time. There was war violence. There was some war violence. There was uh, civilian targeted killing. Um, some of it was political. Some of it was ethnic based. And then there was, uh, you know, then there was genocide and mass killings. But that genocide itself was, you know, included a lot of people who helped Tutsi, who looked Tutsi, who had too many Tutsi family members or friends who, you know, so you could be Tutsi by association as well. And I think that it's important to make those distinctions. But um, not at the same time, not create a hierarchy of victims and say, well, it only matters if we pay attention to one kind of victim. Lars? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, yeah I think that's all true. And I think part of the problem in post-genocide Rwanda is that there's been no accountability um, really for the crimes that were, there's been you know, maximal accountability for the genocide crimes, and there's been absolutely minimal, virtually no accountability for crimes committed by the RPF. And again, that's not to say that there should be any equivalency, but in, in a sense, you, you, you still need to, um, you know, have accountability both for, for the victims but I think also so that it doesn't sort of perpetuate, um, you know, notion. I, I think if there had been more of a full accounting of what the RPF had done, then it would give the lie to the fact that there was any equivalence. So I think not yeah. having it, it aired openly, whether in Gachacha or a truth commission or in national trials, sort of allows uh, people in the country to say, hey, this is all victor's justice, and actually what they did is just as bad, and it, 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 it creates sort of a really nasty, vicious cycle. You mentioned Gachacha. Um, what, what do we know now, or, or what are kind of contemporary perspectives on the process of transitional justice, whether it's Gachacha or, or the International Tribunal? How, how effectively do we think they were? I mean, I, I guess it depends upon, you know, sort of what, what counts in terms of effective or success. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and, and the big tension there is between fairness or efficiency. And mm. there's a real tension, particularly in the Rwandan context, where there were such a large number of genocide suspects. Um, and there were, there were other justice mechanisms as well, the national courts in Rwanda and domestic courts in places like Belgium and Switzerland using universal jurisdiction. But understandably, it's the International Tribunal and the Gachacha courts that have gotten the most attention, partly because they seem to be in such polar opposites. 
Um, I think, you know, the tribunal ends up having, I think, a very mixed record. Um, on the plus side, it clearly, you know, uh, captured, convicted some of the key players in the genocide, and it really helped develop um, international law around genocide. Um, on the on the downside, though, it's just been incredibly slow and incredibly expensive. I mean, in the course mm-hmm. of 20 years, it basically did 75 prosecutions. And, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what the final cost is, but it's in, it's you know it's clearly over a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. But I think more damningly. Um, the tribunal, which was set up by the UN, which was meant to be an independent tribunal, really allowed itself to be manipulated by the Rwandan government. And so I think, I think it has a very tarnished legacy as a result of that. Um, Gachacha were these community courts, and I think that was just this extraordinary radical experiment in transitional justice. And it, it broke with, if you like, the Nuremberg paradigm, right? It's the anti-Nuremberg. Nuremberg was all about you put sort of 22 of the worst guys on trial, hmm. and um, and here's Rwanda saying, no, 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 we're going to put over a million people on trial. And they did it in just a few years. Um, it's important, though, to realize that most of the people they put on trial were not being put on trial for genocidal killing. They were being put on trial for property offenses. Okay, and again, then there's difficulties that you're kind of globalizing genocide guilt to a lot of very opportunistic looters and thieves and so on. Um, I think you know Gachacha clearly accomplished mass justice at a very cheaply, but there was a higher cost to it. I mean, I think the trials um, were very unfair. Um, and again, I think that the the overall result was that it, it imposed collective guilt on the Hutu majority, and that's something that just doesn't seem very conducive to promoting long-term reconciliation. Scott, agree, disagree, want to flesh something out? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the last two statements, two sets of statements that Lars have made, are just, I just think are incredibly vital for, you know, for the listeners to grasp. Um, I think that the reality of the justice process in Rwanda is that it has been a one-sided justice and the international processes have been complicit in that. And the message that that sends is that it's political justice. It's justice for one party, for one side that serves its interests. And in the long run, I believe that that will undermine the legacy and reality of the genocide and will undermine uh, reconciliation. It certainly means that justice is not a mechanism to achieve reconciliation. I'm not saying that there weren't isolated incidents of people coming together. There was a lot of things that were unearthed you know, during the Gachacha process and certainly in the ICTR trials, but as a global process, I think the message that this sends is that the justice mechanism was used for political purposes. It was used to delegitimize a whole category of people and its history um, and to essentially give impunity to the other side. And I think that's how it's understood in Rwanda. And so I, and, and, and you, you know, again, this is not a question of equivalences. This is not a question of denial. It's, it's just a question of the instrumentalization of, of the genocide and its, and its, um, and its memory. And I think it's in the long run, and you know, Lars and I have been saying this a lot, is like it does not serve the interests of the country to do that. Um, it may run in the short term, it might create 
Um, it might it might benefit those in power, but in the long run, I don't think it's going to help. I think it will harm. One of the things the uh, tribunal is known for is uh, recognizing the importance of gender and rape. And uh, relatively quickly, and I guess I'll ask Leanne this first: what What do we now know about gender and and the genocide and the aftermath of genocide? Well, I think what I've learned just from my more recent research is that, um, and and I don't know how much, my guess is this varied from region, from commune perhaps, but that there were, at least in my research site and around my research site, there were, um, there were people who active, so there were active genocidaires who actively um, worked against the killing of women and children. And a lot of them had personal interest in doing so. They had Tutsi wives and girlfriends. Um, but I found that really interesting. That's something I've just learned really recently through mm. through this um, through my recent research. That that in doing so, for instance, even at the very very local level, um, you know, someone told me there was this incident between these two different um, you know uh, two different men in in these killing groups, and and one of them said, "Well, you know, we need to." kill the women and children now and the other one hmm. the other guy said um well if you kill my wife i'm going to come kill your wife and your children too and so there was so there was um i think differing feelings about what you know who who should be killed and what the status of women and children should be of course we know that there are plenty of places where you know after a week or even at the, from the very beginning women and children were targeted i mean of course we know that but that was just one aspect that i found surprising as mm-hmm. far as the targeting of women specifically specifically for rape i don't know that much about that that's not my area of study i don't have a lot of data on that question i know others are are working on that question in a comparative fashion that's a very mm-hmm. important question um I would say, and 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 it's an area where we definitely need more, um, you know, more data, more knowledge. I think, um, and I guess I would say that um, there is. I, I think that there is something about the power of that kind of gender-specific violence that is has that we have not studied enough. Like that's definitely one area where we could mm-hmm. understand better the power behind these kind of mass rapes. And I think one of the things that we're probably going to uncover, which scholars have started to uncover in this area of sexual violence, is that it wasn't just, though I, I think um, what we'll find out is that it wasn't just Tutsi women, that certain Hutu women were also probably raped, and that there were also probably, you know, um, men and boys who were targeted as well. And so I just think that that is an area where um, that just begs for more research and also, I think, a comparative lens. Mm-hmm. And Scott, just to flip the question around, um, to what extent is is the aftermath of the genocide a gendered kind of activity or experience? The experience of living in Rwanda in 96 or 98 or 2000, to what extent does that vary for women or men? Or is, is, is that affected by the way in which the demographics emerged outside of the genocide, after the genocide? Yeah, Lars and Leanne may be, may be better positioned and, to answer that. Uh, I'm question. happy to have Lars pitch in if, she, yeah. if you'd like. I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, one thing to say is that obviously Rwanda gets a lot of acclaim for having, you know, the largest percentage of women parliamentarians um, mm-hmm. in the world. 
and you know, and and other people like Jenny Burnett, who've looked at this more closely, um, have I, I think you know managed to to show that you know that is also um, uh, there's a lot of window dressing to that. And you know, for me, w- what I saw is that women. There were very strong women's organizations right after the genocide, the women's survivor organizations, and they really pressed the government to um, make sure that rape was in the first category and that was tried in the national courts and that was not tried in the Gachacha courts, um, so that there would be really full accountability um, for rape. And then as those sort of strong women in civil society organizations got appointed to government posts, got appointed to parliament, um, the civil society activism died away. And over time, the Rwandan government um, moved rape cases into Gachacha without any real protest. And so, you know, at the same time, you have sort of women demonstrably becoming more politically powerful in terms of representation in Parliament, their actual uh, women-friendly, gender-friendly policies in terms of whether rape should be done at a community mm-hmm. court or whether it should be done in national courts falls away. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's again, partly about how, you know, the government's been really incredibly successful at co-opting um, a lot of, you know, sort of what had been great civil society activism. Hmm. Well, we've only got a few minutes left. And so, Scott, I'd just like to start concluding by asking you to, um, when I talk to my students, they know the Holocaust. A few have heard of Armenia. A few have heard of Bosnia. Most all of them have at least heard about Rwanda. Why, Why has Rwanda had so much attention paid to it? So I think there are a couple answers to that question. I think, first of all, um, from a sort of political, you know, the sort of political origins of, of knowledge, as I said earlier, uh, and others said, have said too, is that the current government in Rwanda has very much promoted uh, a particular history of the genocide and wants the knowledge of the genocide and a particular understanding of the genocide to be widespread throughout the world. So that means that they facilitated a lot of different kinds of information about it. They provided a very strong narrative about it. Um, so, so I think that there's sort of that element is the first one. You know, that's totally different from almost any other case that you just cited. Mm-hmm. Um, Bosnia is very contested. Um, in certainly in Turkey, there's um, you know close denial, and the Holocaust is you know probably the most similar, but it has a more complicated history as well. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that. You, we've had a, a number of very talented writers, filmmakers, mm-hmm. uh, who discovered Rwanda and and created um, Manichaean histories in the, in the sense of you know there were clear good guys and clear bad guys uh, in the mm-hmm. story and created a story of the Rwandan genocide that was immediately recognizable. There was this incredible horror that one side planned devised that is due in the long run to European colonialism. And when they executed this this plan, this strategy, uh, the world turned away, abandoned Rwanda at its at its worst moment, and this horrible violence took place. Now 
that's that's not that's not wrong. That's I mean that's a true narrative of what happened, but it leaves out a lot of complication, a lot of nuance um, that I think the scholars have been trying to in the last fifty years have been trying to re-inject into the story. But nonetheless, that narrative, that clean narrative of this horror that existed that people knew about, and in some ways the West is responsible for is a narrative that very much resonated in popular culture in the 1990s and the 2000s. So you have political interests, you have a bunch of sort of talented writers and filmmakers who who who, who took on the story, and you have, you know, a, a pretty simplistic narrative that appealed to a lot of different people. Um, and I think, you know, films like Hotel Rwanda, books like uh, Phil Gorovich's We Wish to Inform mm-hmm. You and, 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 and others, uh, really had pretty big, you know, Samantha Powers both these had pretty pretty dramatic um pretty dramatic impacts in, in popular culture. We don't have equivalents for Bosnia or for some of the other cases. So that that would be my main answer. So so Lars and then Leanne and I'll start with Lars. What kind yeah. of conclusions have people drawn from the Rwandan genocide about how they need to change behavior, whether on the international level or the national level? And, and I guess mostly I'm thinking about the international level, whether on governments or the UN or, or NGOs. What kind of conclusions have they drawn from the Rwandan genocide and, and, and how have they tried to put them into practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that if we if we look at sort of the international response to mass violence in a place like the Central African Republic, I do think it shows we've come a long way in the last mm-hmm. 20 years and that some of the lessons from Rwanda have been learned. Um, you know, probably the, the best example of that is in terms of peacekeeping operations, right? Sort of, you know, what you have post-Rwanda is that it, it created a rethink within the United Nations by Kofi Annan, by Brahimi, um, about, you know, sort of there ha- peacekeepers have to do more than just protect themselves. They also have to protect civilians. And mm-hmm. so you have these robust UN, AU peacekeeping operations that use force and oftentimes a lot of force to protect civilians. And I, I think that's, that's a very important thing. Another important thing is that you have a number of new UN mechanisms um, that have come about. So you've got the special advisors on prevention of genocide, special advisors on responsibility to protect. You also have sort of the use of uh, the International Criminal Court um, as a credible threat to kind of prosecute, punish crimes against humanity and, you know, trying to use it at, at times as a, as a deterrent. And, you know, again, recognizing, as Scott said earlier, that, you know, we're not talking about irrational frenzies. We're talking about, um, you know, political leaders um, in these countries who are making rational choices to, to use mass violence. And then you're trying to use, you know, things like the International Criminal Court to get them to adjust their cost-benefit analysis. And so I think that is all incredibly important. Has it stopped killing in the Central African Republic? <laughs> of course not. Mm-hmm. But I, I still think it, 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 you know, we've come a long way. And I think it is important to recognize that without, of course, we can't rest on laurels looking at Central African Republic. There's a lot more that must and needs to be done. But again, I, I think that that is an accomplishment. And I think it's something that really was driven by uh, the Rwandan genocide. Leanne, anything? Yeah, I, I guess I would say 
I'm a little bit um, more pessimistic. Um, and and I, I just would say that my fear is that, you know, the U.S., I'm just mostly speaking about the U.S. in this sense, that that we we have people who actually have pretty – who have very good knowledge of some of these places. And yet I'm not sure how much that knowledge dribbles up to those who are actually, you know, briefing the president or, or you know, the higher-ups. And so my worry is that we still we, – we end up learning the wrong lessons um, and, and that the way, you know, our diplomatic system, our, our um, foreign service system works is that it's always about churn and, and not getting too close to a particular place because, of, you mm-hmm. know, because there's this idea that if you're too close, you're not objective, which is – you know, sort of ridiculous from a researcher standpoint. I mean, as researchers, we want to get as close as possible precisely <laughs> because we believe that getting closer actually gets us at, at the real dynamics that are going on. So my fear is that um, we, you know, we haven't drawn, um, that, that we've learned some, but then that gets, the, that knowledge sometimes gets lost. I think maybe one of the things we've learned are the practicalities or impracticalities and limitations of ad hoc courts of mm-hmm. of these international tribunals in general. I mean, the, the trend, this is not my area, but the trend seems to be, you know, either one permanent court with ICC without the U.S. as a signatory, and then these hybrid courts on the ground, um, as in Sierra Leone and Cambodia. And, and maybe that is a response to the fact that both the ICTY and the ICTR have very mixed kinds of legacies. And, and maybe it's too soon to tell, actually. But a lot of the research shows that, you know, they haven't done um, what they, you know, set out to do. On the other hand, I always wonder why we put on those kinds of international mm. tribunals the, the kinds of the set of goals that we always have about reconciliation. Um, but mm. this is the kind of research that, you know, I have a student doing this, and I'm sure, you know, Lars and Scott both have students studying the, the impact of these courts. And and I think it's it's there's there are a lot of things that we're going to be really you know, shocked and saddened by and other things that we're going to be, um, one of the things these courts do is they, they do document, you know, going back to your first question, what Scott said about mm-hmm. the importance of Allison's book, that it documented that a genocide had occurred. And, and so I think maybe one of the things these courts do, which wasn't really part of their mandate, was was to really document. And so you can disagree politically with the findings of the courts, um, but but there is something about the the sheer amassing of that kind of information for researchers down the line and for just general knowledge, for just better knowledge about you know what really happened. I think in these two cases of former Yugoslavia. And Rwanda, which I think is actually quite important, um, but I, you know, I worry that as we, as we, um, you know, get into conversations about what's happening in the Middle East or even in Afghanistan or Iraq now, that that again we fall back into these really, really too facile terms of sectarian or you know mm-hmm. those people have been. Um, you know, fighting each other for thousands of years. And, you know, I always like to say, well, you know, those Democrats and Republicans have been fighting each other for thousands of years. <laughs> and, and you know, just to make the point that, you know, when we say that about certain kinds of labels, it sounds ridiculous and, and that we should we should be smarter than that because we now have that information. Information is more readily available now with the Internet. And so I feel like, you know, we need to use that knowledge more. 
And and that's actually an excellent transition to to my final question. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciated that. I just like to offer each of you maybe thirty seconds to to recommend a book, or maybe it's a movie or a documentary or something that for people who are listening who want to go further, either with Rwanda and your your, your recommendation maybe about Rwanda specifically, or maybe just inspired by one of the issues we've talked about. What would you recommend that they read or they watch? And I'll just start with Scott. So I think that, um, with the exception of Leanne and Lars's work, um, <laughs> the, most is the, uh, the most important publication on the genocide in Rwanda is um, the work of, of the French sociologist André Guichawa. And mm-hmm. most of your readers are probably not um, French speakers, or many of them are probably mm-hmm. not. Um, but we are in the process of, of translating and publishing through the University of Wisconsin Press uh, his main book on the history of the genocide, which I think um, takes Allison's insights um, and some of her research, but, but gives it a different interpretation and um, I think is, a, is, the, is the most important work um, at the national level since her book. Um, so I have, I have that as something to look out for. Um, in terms of the various movies, this might be useful to some readers. I, I think, and I, I would love Lars's and Leanne's views on this as well, but I, I think that, um, I think that my, my two favorites on, on Rwanda uh, are the, the Triumph of Evil, which is the PBS frontline documentary mm-hmm. on in, intervention and the, and the sort of dynamics of the intervention, which I just think is still classic and it's just great. Um, it has some, I think, couple errors, but it's still still very good. And then in terms of the reconstruction of the genocide, the dynamics of the genocide, I, I, I think that the HBO film Sometimes in April mm-hmm. is, um, is my first choice. But those are my those are my initial two cents. How about you, Lars? Um, I, I I like I like uh, both of uh, Scott's choices in movies. I, I I the one that I use in teaching and that I've seen many times and that I've got the poster on my wall that it's staring at me all the time. It's not very cheerful. It's uh, My Neighbor <laughs> Killer by Anne uh-huh. Aguillon, who's a friend and somebody I met in Rwanda, and I actually only became a friend with her because I liked her movies so much. Um, hmm. And uh, it's it's a documentary about uh, life in a on a hill sort of over the course of nine years, and it really looks at Gachacha and the return of um, people from detention and how they get reintegrated and not reintegrated back into the community. And it's just fascinating. And it's, mm-hmm. it's great to show scenes of it to students in class and say, okay, does this look like reconciliation to you or not? Does this look like justice to you or not? And it really kind of sparks an incredible debate. I tell you, this is Scott, I, I totally agree with Bob. Yeah. It's just such a powerful uh, film and readers should absolutely look at it. And I don't know why I didn't think of it. So I just want to, I want to sup, I want to remove my suggestions and, and take part of this. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you a copy of the poster. I'm looking at it right now. I'm in my office. I'm looking at it. So I, just, I, just was looking, I was looking at my bookshelf, not my wall. As my seven-year-old would say, there's yeah. no tag backs. Yeah, the other, the, yeah, the other, the other film, but it's sadly unavailable. 
Unavailable. It was a short Canadian film, the first film documentary film on Romeo Dallaire. I think it was called mm-hmm. The Just Man. And it was by maybe Stephen Silver or somebody like that. And it's the full, it's, it, it is so moving and powerful. And basically, a Dallaire, um, it's, you know, he hasn't recovered yet. He hasn't gotten used to telling his story yet. And so he basically breaks down at the end of the film and just says, turn it off. And that's the way the film ends, as he has a breakdown. Yeah. And it's, it is very, very moving. I mean, you can get glimpses, similar glimpses in the PBS Ghosts of Rwanda, but mm-hmm. in terms of power, I don't know why that film isn't available, but if anybody's listening out there who knows anything about film production, get that get that film out there. Mm-hmm. It's probably on YouTube, Lars. <laughs> oh, I, I, I know, I know, I'm incompetent and, and a luddite, but I, I, I have checked that. <laughs> so I, until the end, you get the last. Yeah, word. I would agree with all of those. Um, I, I show them for different reasons. I, uh, of course, I show, and Aguillon's films, um, or, or portions of it. I also show um, parts of Ghost of Rwanda to my mm-hmm. students. I, I just think I do it almost as much for the visuals. I think it's really important for students to, first of all, to get off their um, you know their phone and their and their computers, and to actually see what genocide looks like. There are these opening sequences in Ghost of Rwanda. They're so shocking, even after all these years of studying the genocide. And it's just you know it's just a camera that that clearly the vehicle was going through a road, and the cameraman just you know took shots of the bodies on the ground, and and you can see that their bodies and and I think that rolls during the opening credits, and I show it almost you know, just for those kinds of images so that the students understand that we're talking about real people and this isn't some abstract idea, but something that really, really happened. And and so, and then I think it's great. Anne's work is so wonderful for actually seeing actual people talking about what did or didn't happen in their hill. And, um, and then we had the same conversation when I showed that to a big first year freshman class, which was, you know, is he telling the truth? And, you know, do you think he's telling the truth? And I, I do think that's, it's a, you know, so I use these different ones for um, different reasons. And speaking of Dallaire, you know, I hadn't thought of it this way, but I guess I probably, you know, um, my I, I always say my mother's the most knowledgeable, like, Rwanda person in all of Washington State where she lives. <laughs> and she may well be, but one of the books she read when I started to do my research was um, Shake Hands with the Devil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because it's a memoir, it's a little bit more accessible. And it really talks about some of these events, you know, from a really, obviously, really, really personal um, first person account, which I think is, which we know cost him, um, you know, dearly. And and I think that that's probably the one to a general audience. Um, for students, I would say, if there are any student listeners, I would say the one piece that is not about Rwanda, but that I, I wish every student who is interested in these issues would read is Rogers Brubaker, a sociologist at UCLA, has this very short piece called Ethnicity Without Groups. And it's it's not an easy piece to read. And there's a ton in there that's, I think, important for all of us to understand who want to understand these events, these very tragic events better. And if there's one piece that I would tell any student to read, it would be Rogers Brubaker, Ethnicity Without Groups. Well, those are all wonderful suggestions. And for those of you who are listening, I highly encourage you all to pursue those. Um, and I want to say thank you so much to all of 
the panelists, to Scott and Lars and Leanne. This has been wonderfully interesting and entertaining. I appreciate your time and your effort, and thanks again. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a roundtable conversation about the Rwandan genocide with Scott Strauss, Leanne Fuji, and Lars Waldorf. If you enjoyed this discussion, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you come back next time when I'll talk with Deborah Meyerson about her new book, On the Path to Genocide, Armenia and Rwanda Reexamined. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.